You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations from authors, scholars and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes and whatever platform you might be listening from. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Yes, you guys are good to go. So you're in D.C.? And DC just now, um, yeah. I'm on the East Coast too. I'm in New York. <laughs> you, you're on the Lower East Side, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I came back home just before. Um, I was in LA for a year, and I came back home just before everything locked locked down. I I lived in New York between 2015 and 2017. Um, I, I really loved the city, um, and over in the Lower East Side, I really loved uh, Cossars, Bialys. Um, <laughs> I live, I live I very close there. Is. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like nothing over here. No one really knows like this because I'm pretty far east. You know. Yeah. yeah. Don't really, it's more closer to Orchard Street, but I'm actually really close to to Cossars, and it's really yeah, it's good. <laughs> okay, so. My book, American Spy, uh, is set mostly in the 1980s. Uh, the main character is Marie Mitchell, who is a black woman and an FBI agent. And she is asked, uh, she's approached by the CIA and asked to help undermine um, Thomas Sankara's Marxist government. And Sankara was a real life leader. Um, he was really the leader of Burkina Faso in West Africa in the 1980s and um you know the 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 request kind of forces marie to uh figure out what it is that she really believes in if she's really willing to undermine this person who she feels very complicated feelings for um romantic feelings and also um you know feeling that he is a uh important and popular leader um and so, yeah, it's it's that's my my short synopsis. I could <laughs> go on, but I I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is one of the few novels or even books that I have read that looks at the the political landscape of Burkina Faso. So, could you just for anybody that is new to this, which is probably a lot of listeners, could you just sketch that out for us. Uh, Sankara is a fascinating figure, isn't he? He was called the African Che Guevara. Mm -hmm, He was, and he has a lot of similarities. And that was one of the reasons why I was attracted to telling the story, because he is so much like Che, and and people know Che here, but they don't really know Sankara. Uh, The similarities include his charisma, and he, um, you know, he drove around the capital city of Burkina on a motorcycle. Um, he was, he played the guitar. He was 
very, he was a young, charismatic leader. Um, and he was leader of Burkina Faso in the mid 1980s. And during that time, it was a kind of a golden era um, for the nation. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to give too much more about what happened to him because that might spoil some elements of uh, uh, the plot if you've never heard of or heard of him before. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of who who he is. So yeah, African Che is a good a good comparison. And he's only thirty three when he comes to power in the early eighties, and then he um, he's this just really fascinating uh, figure and he also the, so the country Burkina Faso as we know it that's that's really a a modern name for it isn't it mm -hmm. yeah it, its colonial name was Upper Volta it was a French colony up until the 60s so uh, Sankara himself you know remembered that he remember, had the experience of uh, of living under colonial rule um, so because it was a relatively new country when he was a leader, he also ended up uh, writing the national anthem. <laughs> you know, like it really was, he was a very pivotal figure and is still um, still thought of as one uh, to this day in the country. Well, I, I really loved your novel um, and not just because it's a spy novel. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more. I think our readers will be really interested to know how you landed on the spy fiction genre. Um, do you see yourself as a spy fiction writer? Uh, who are some of your favorite spy fiction authors? Uh, just tell us a little bit more about your engagement with the spy fiction genre. Of course, yes. So I don't see myself <laughs> as a spy fiction writer. Um, I actually, this book started for me as an assignment in grad school. I was supposed to write a story that was based in suburbia. That was just uh, the background, it was a suburban story. And I saw this suburban mom, a black woman, who was someone that makes an attempt on her life. And the most interesting story, you know, for me was that it was because of something, some political intrigue. And so every time, every question I had about her backstory, it just, the answer in my heart was that she was a spy. And I got really excited by that. But then it meant I had to play a bunch of catch up <laughs> because I didn't, I hadn't, I wasn't really that familiar with the genre. And I felt like, you know, if you're going to write in a genre, you better respect it. Um, so you, you better read as much as you can of, of the classics and of what's going on now. So I started with um, Bukhari and I, I, I read um, Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And I loved that book um, for a lot of reasons. And I borrowed elements of it, you know, the, the cynicism. Um, I feel that Marie has different reasons to be cynical because she's a black woman in an institution that maybe doesn't serve her. Um, but she does have that sort of same cynicism. And um, I, then I, I read uh, The Quiet American, which I thought was great too. I, I didn't... <laughs> And realized that the title is a little bit of a burn on American, but the only quiet American is a dead American. Uh, I thought that was really funny. Um, yeah, you know, I, I read Rogue Mail, um, and then I, yep, I read uh, Restless by William Boyd. It was, you know, I'm not gonna go through all of them, but I, I did read a lot of uh, spy novels, and then a couple of um, memoirs from intelligence officers, um, most notably one from a, a female officer called Blowing My Cover. Um, and she, her life, you know, she, she was writing about much later in time but than, than Marie's life, but I felt that some of the same dynamics would probably have been felt. And it's interesting that you mentioned Graham Greene and John le Carre because the novel deals with the moral ambiguity that you see in those novels rather than the, the certitude that you see in Tom Clancy or something where it's more there's right and there's wrong. Was that, 
was that something that attracted you to it that opportunity yeah. to play around with that I love that I, I love those yes it was something that attracted me to it um I think that that's what's the most interesting thing in a spy novel. <laughs> to, to me, though, it's not the, um, you know, it's 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 thinking about, yeah. I think there's a lot of room to be a complicated uh, spy, and a lot of that complication is in is in is in the moral ambiguity of sort of does it sit well with you to do what you've been asked to do. Um, you know, I just personally don't have the experience of having un, unconsidered patriotism um, in my life. I feel that, you know, as a Black American, that is a little bit of a more difficult ask for me. Um, so I, that's the thing that I wanted to, that I was most interested in, in, in trying to uncover in telling Marie's story. And you draw out some really interesting parallels in the book between uh, espionage and intelligence and the African-American experience. Uh, so, for example, uh, uh, when Marie graduates, her father says to her, I've been, if I remember correctly, I've been undercover in this country for, for my whole life. Could you speak a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, uh, of course. That's like a direct reference um, to... Invisible Man by Ralph Allison. Um, on his deathbed, the, the main character's grandfather on his deathbed said, you know, says something very similar, that he's been a spy in the enemy's country. And it's like a confounding thing for, for the main character. He doesn't understand what his grandfather meant because as far as he's aware, his grandfather has been very obsequious um, for his whole life. And, you know, to think that, that there was some sort of betrayal in that is, you know, he can't really process it. Um, and it's a question that he comes back to for the whole of the book. And so in some ways, um, my book is an answer to that question, what it means to kind of keep that double consciousness um, of just sort of being hyper aware of how you're perceived as a, as a Black American and how you perceive yourself and how those two things are um, in conflict. I felt like being a, a spy novel was a really good metaphor for that. Um, that's what attracted me to the story because I feel that the real spy or the most honest spy is a person who's always is hyper aware of how they are perceived because their life is in danger if they make any missteps around that. Um, so yeah, that was that was really, you know, it was it was definitely Ralph Ellison that motivated that, and then the idea of what I understand spies to be uh, that kept that kept that theme going in the in the uh, in the story. What one of the other things that I found really fascinating was that there's a number of different levels that the novel is working on. So it's part of the spy fiction genre, but there's also a gender uh, dynamic to the novel. There's uh, the politics of race in the novel. So there's lots of interesting layers there. Um, could you help us unpack those intersecting layers a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I just feel that I was bringing my, my vision of the world to a genre that maybe um, isn't that familiar with my vision <laughs> of the world, which is, you know, there are, uh, there are tons of, writers and more and more um, women writing in, in the spy genre, but I really felt like my interpretation of what a spy is is so different <laughs> and than Tom Clancy's, for example, like just how that person must move through the world. I just have this assumption of, of a lot of anxiety in that position um, <laughs> and a lot of uh, an incredible amount of self-awareness and an incredible real nuanced perception of your own identity and um, so for Marie that those two things are intertwined she's really you know in her in her personal life she's very aware of her her own identity as a as a woman and as you know as a black woman and then you know when she's undercover um, her her sense of herself um, you know, 
just her, her awareness of herself is really brought to the fore because she's performing um, a version of herself as, as an undercover officer. What, one of the parts of the book that I really love is when Marie goes to Burkina Faso um, and she's dealing with, or, or she's working through questions of identity. So one of the, the passages that I really love, uh, she says, every day I spent in Burkina Faso was a reminder of how American I was. In the United States, I thought of myself before, I sorry, I thought of myself as black before I thought of myself as American. And Wagadoju, routinely, those designations were reversed. Yeah, I mean, that was just what really happened to me when I went to Waga. <laughs> you know, I, so you I, I spent, um, yeah, I spent six weeks there, which is about the same amount of time in my head that I um, imagine Marie spent there, um, just because I wanted, you know, whatever I was going to write about the country to be as authentic as possible because it's not it's not my culture you know I'm not I, I am really an American and so what surprised me was how aware of my um, Americanness I felt because people would you know stop me in the street they would be they could tell just from looking at me that I didn't that I didn't belong and um, you know that was that's always a disorienting feeling <laughs> um, and it but it was also really important to that experience um, and really honest to, to my up to my feelings at the time. And I, I, I like the way that she has a, a motorcycle helmet and she's just relieved that that gives her some respite from being recognized <laughs> as an American quite so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, you know, I had a red one with a, someone kind of scared it up for, from me for me and I and I would the visor was actually kind of dirty so I couldn't see through it <laughs> so I kept it up uh, I was you know it was like a lot of dust um, kind of trapped on it but yeah I felt it was but it was really hot to have my head in that thing the whole time so it was, there was a trade-off um, but yeah and research for our interview I came across a number of commentators that were you know commenting on the fact that a female African-American intelligence officer is very atypical of, of the genre. Why do you think that you have been a trailblazer in many ways for, for, for the genre? Why is there so little work that has been done? Yeah, I don't, I, that's a great question. And I actually, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, you know, that, you know, it feels like, um, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, I know that maybe it, it, there's a, a closed feeling to the genre. Maybe people kind of, um, writers assume, okay, you know, I'm not going to be, my voice is not going to be one that's going to find any interest or, you know, in the genre. Um, but I didn't really have that concern. I, I think, um, I have a lot of faith in, in readers. Um, I think that there are a lot of readers who are excited by the possibility of, of reading, you know, an experience that's um, different from their own. And if it's in a genre that is, you know, a genre they love, then all the better. Um, and then I think, you know, some authors, some, it is most of the authors traditionally have been white men but some of them have tried, like I remember, I think there's another Graham Greene story where, you know, there's like a mild-mannered uh, uh, um, MI6 officer and he's got a South African wife and there's a whole, I think it's something blood, something with blood in the title. Um, and there's a whole, you know, communist subplot. Um, and I felt, when I, when I read the description, I was like, oh, is this, is this the same terrain as, as my book? And then I read it and I was like, oh no, not at all. <laughs> I don't, I don't have to worry. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I feel, you know, I'm not sure that I'm answering the question very well. It's just because I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I hope though that, you know, and I certainly didn't think, okay, well, I'm gonna definitely, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trailblaze, you know, like I was just sort of focused on the, 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 the metaphor, the interesting thing to me about, um, 
what it about feeling like you're always hiding in plain sight um and 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 what that is what that would be because i feel that marie felt that way feels that way and um and what it would be to make that feeling literal <laughs> you know as a part of her job so um yeah my interest was in kind of telling the story and then Oh, and then once I realized it was in this genre, then doing the work of making sure that I was um, informed enough about the genre to to treat it with respect. But yeah, I hope that it means that other people will tell, you know, different stories um, in the genre too. I think, you know, every genre I think needs a little bit of blast of fresh air. So um, yeah, I hope that more people come after me. And John le Carre said, I use the furniture of espionage to amuse the reader. Do you see yourself as using the furniture of espionage to, to do something in particular other than finish a writing assignment and write your first <laughs> novel? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I like, I think uh, in the same way to amuse the, the reader, you know, the the first chapter is pretty action-packed on purpose because <laughs> I think, you know, I know how I go to things. I read the first couple of pages on Amazon and if it's boring, then I, I don't buy it. <laughs> I want it to be able to, you know, um, <laughs> other people do that and want them to read. So, you know, and I think that the genre is people are like interested um, because of it. But yes, you know, I, I do think that I will stay um, with my next book. I, I'd like to stay using genre elements, but I think the next thing I want to write is uh, about a superhero. So, because <laughs> she does, I think That's that okay. I, I am interested in, in heroes. You know, Marie is a kind of hero. And I think that I keep, um, I think at the heart of what I keep doing is, is going back to our idea of, like a, an American idea of, of heroism. Um, and because I, I guess I, I guess that's my, I guess that's my thematic interest. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Could you talk a little bit more about how you came across Burkina Faso in particular, as opposed to Senegal or some other country? And also speak a little bit more about, about New York. I know that that's where you live. Um, help us understand how you populated the book. Sure, yeah. Actually, it was a, 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 another kind of backfilling. Like, I didn't choose um, Burkina. I chose Sankara. You know, I... I I think I'd first read about him in college and, and found um, had a historical crush that he was cute. <laughs> I thought, um, you know, he was a, a really compelling historical figure. And I was surprised that, you know, it, it had taken me so late in my life to, to learn who he was. So, you know, I, I kind of always had in the back of my head that I wanted to write um, something about him. And then, you know, once I realized that, then I realized, oh, okay, I need to go to Burkina, I need to really un try to get a sense of, of the context in which this person was, was leading. Um, so that was the Burkina element. Um, and then the Martinique element is kind of, 
if you if you think about it, so it's like New York, Burkina, which is on the you know western coast, on the coast or close to the coast of West Africa, it's landlocked, but and then uh, Martinique. So there's like a triangle um, across the Atlantic, and to me that triangle represents like uh, the roots of the the slave trade. You know, like my my family was um, uh, I'm from Barbados, um, and you know I live I live here now, so I feel like I have that triangle um, in, in my family as well. So, and I chose Martinique because it's geographically close to Barbados, but it's also francophone. And I needed her because of Sankara to, you know, it's a French speaking country, I needed her to be a francophone. So, um, yeah, and then New York is because New York's my city <laughs> forever. Um, you know, I've been spending time in LA because I've been writing for television um, and I'm here now and uh, I, I, man, I missed it. <laughs> you know, growing up, I always thought that every city was just a version of New York, but bigger or smaller. That is so wrong. I don't know where I got that from. That is so wrong. <laughs> you know, LA is nothing like it. It's, you know, you need that. I couldn't understand why people said they needed a car in a place like LA. And now, uh, now I get it. <laughs> um, it's, I, I am a big, big New York fan. And, uh, you know, my family is from, my family is from here too. My grandfather, you know, in, in this story, in the novel, the main character's father is a deputy police commissioner of New York. My, my grandfather really was. So, you know, we've been, um, my family has lived here since, since the 30s. So. What was the connection to Harlem? Because Harlem features quite prominently in the book. Was that, is that because you used to live there or was that because it was an epicenter of African-American culture and identity or is it a little bit of both? Yeah, it was because I, I think of it as an epicenter. Um, and, you know, it is, I do love, I, I feel that this book, even though it is a, a spy novel, is in a lot, is in conversation with a lot of Harlem Renaissance um, literature. So I, you know, I, I kind of was paying a, an homage to that, to this place that has created so many, um, writers that I admired and that were were in my mind as I was um, as I was writing um, and then also you know my my grandfather you know lived in in Harlem um, I I've never lived in Harlem but I you know was I certainly pretended to <laughs> I had a lot of friends who lived on 135th street when I was 14 who didn't know exactly where I lived um, because I was a little embarrassed about living, you know, downtown. But um, I spent a lot of time there and, and enough time where I could see that I felt that I could accurately give. Like there are places that I, I wrote about that no longer exist. Um, they've been, you know, mowed down and made into like Target or Starbucks. But um, I remember them from when I was a teenager. And I felt like uh, those places were, you know, those were the places that Marie would have been around in the 80s, not not the uh, <laughs> whatever is, whatever's on 125th Street now. Um, so yeah, um, it was authenticity and also paying, paying homage to the group of writers. And another, another thing that fascinated me was the title, American Spy, and it made me think of, it set off all kinds of synapses in my brain, and I was thinking about all the other novels or movies with American in the title, uh, American Psycho, American Gangster, you know, American Gothic. Did you feel consciously that you were writing in a kind of American fill-in-the-blank genre? Yeah, that was like the one thing that I was always aware, like knew that I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I wanted there to be American in the title, and it changed um, over the course of the over the course of it. So the first the first title was American. It was like L, like capital, like a half in French, half English word. And I nixed it because I hated saying it. <laughs> because it felt, it just felt, even now saying it, I feel weird. It looked good on the page, but I hated saying it. So I was actually, there was no worry. I didn't have to do any, no one 
there was no pressure on me to come up with a new title. Everyone knew I hated it, but there's no pressure. And then I went away um, to, I actually went to Mongolia and I was kind of in the, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I, um, I was standing really, really close to this elementary school, which was the only place where I could get Wi-Fi. And on my phone, I got an email from my editor that said, you have to decide right now what this title is going to be. <laughs> so I had, I've been messing around for years. And then all of a sudden, when it was like an inopportune <laughs> time, I had to like kind of figure out what I wanted it to be. And it was an important thing to me. Um, and they and, 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 my, and my agent and my editor, everyone was like, okay, you know, we like American Woman. And I, even now, hear the Lenny Kravitz song. So I was like, I cannot have, <laughs> I cannot have that. That'll be what everyone thinks of forever. I, it just is not going to work for me. So I, you know, there was a long list and I thought, okay, American Spy is good for me because it is very, it's a very generic title, but the character is really specific. And so I think like there, that's an okay, I was happy with that balance. Um, and was saying, you know, you have, maybe you have a generic idea of what this person is, but the character is actually going to be the, the opposite of that. And I think that um, there's a lot of literature and stuff I've noticed now from um, from like black uh, creators who are using America. Like I'm thinking of Chayari Jones as an uh, American mar in American Marriage, um, for example. Like there are a couple where it's like this is a this is a black story, and we're and we're putting it into the like general rubric of of American because. We are Americans as well, <laughs> and it should go without saying. But uh, you know, think of us when you think of when you think of Americans. So I mean, I feel like that was where I was going with that, and and I and now I think I want to keep doing it. I I wrote a, a script about a black woman who's a con artist, and I called it American Confidence. So um, I think I have maybe three of them, three of them in me before <laughs> I think you can do a trio, and then before everyone gets bored of the same thing. So. Uh, I, I'm gonna make them count, but I think I got two more left with the American in the title. An American trilogy. Yeah, the American trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> and so you you mentioned like doing research by reading spy fiction. Did you do research on what it takes to be a spy, the spy mm -hmm. craft, the trade craft? Um, tell us a little bit more about that process. Yeah, I mean, for the spy, how to be a spy, I, it was a, just a lot of books and a lot of, you know, a lot of podcasts, a lot of people, you know, people who just memoirs, people who were like this, I've actually had this experience. Um, and then for Sankara related research, there were, I feel like there were three big areas of research for Sankara related research, you know, going to the country. And actually, I got so lucky, I actually was able, it's a very informal place, and I was able to meet someone who not, who had run for president a few years before I met him, who was actually in a book about Sankara that I had taken out of the library, uh, taken out of the library, uh, it was a picture of him in, in the 80s, and, um, and, and then, uh, and, and he had, he had been close friends and was actually chased out of the country uh, during the coup that, you know, Sankara out of out of power. Um, you know, he was an, there was an attempt on this guy's life, and I got to do like the primary. You know, I got to do an interview with him. Um, he showed me his like poetry that he'd written in exile, and it was really. And he talked about his friends and and and, and missing him, and um, so that was that was really good. And then the FBI stuff, it was back to um, books. You know, reading about. You know, Ronald Kessler has a book, uh, it's called FBI, and I was like, this is it. <laughs> this is a book that I feel like, yeah, <laughs> this is something I can read. Uh, this will help me <laughs> explain the FBI. Um, and yeah, and so just all as much material as I can get, as much firsthand accounts as I could get. Um, and then, and then, and then guessing, you know, about how, uh, what I imagine it would, just using my imagination once I had all of that information um, in front of me. And talking about the FBI, one of the passages that really struck me was uh, a sense of self-importance permeated the culture. So did machismo and knee-jerk conservatism. To get by, I told my colleagues, 
that I didn't care about politics. Very few of those men understood having no choice about whether they were political or not. Unlike me, they weren't people who had had their existence politicized on their behalf. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of felt like that <laughs> probably was what it feels like. You know, because like, I, I mean, you know, the, 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 the Kessler book that I described, you know, I think I actually got that from reading it because his, he, the book is published in the 90s, early 90s, and that was why I started there because, you know, I felt like it was pretty close to when Marie would have been there. And I felt like that book was really instructive in what it was not saying um, as much as what it did say, like, and who, you know, there are chapters about ethics and about race and about women, but the way that it's presented, like, you know, like in the book, Kessler goes out of his way to be like, this is a very attractive woman, you know, it's like that has no bearing on, on her abilities. As, a, as an FBI agent, but that's like the first this descriptor, the first adjective in his sentence about her. And it just felt like, to me, that was emblematic of, I'm sure, what it felt like to work in one of these, one of these institutions. Like, so, um, and then just my own experience with um, sometimes being in, you know, where I feel that I'm uh, just feeling a little bit on the outside of a, of a in, a, in an institution, um, uh, just in, in work places, you know, I felt just like whatever I felt must have must really be amplified and in um, in the FBI's um, because you know there was a lot of you know at the time like it was it wasn't even considered sexism because it was just unconsidered, <laughs> you know, like you can just you can just say I don't want you know, I think this woman's gonna get in my way. Um, and it's also, I don't think it would really be that big of a deal. Um, there's also kind of a thing, a comment on, you know, I, I just think, I think when I was re writing that part of the book, I was also reading Casino Royale um, by Ian Fleming. And that is, I think people who are only familiar with the movies would be shocked by like what, what Bond's opinions are of women. <laughs> like, cause he's like, no. I have to work with a woman. Oh no, this is a nightmare. Um, and it's it's like like deeply deeply sexist. But um, and and uh, you know, I I thought it was. I mean, you know, I thought it was just worth worth mentioning that that is kind of built into the history of, of some of this uh, of this of the genre and also of uh, you know these institutions. Um, very aware. <laughs> <laughs> and have you, have you ever had any anyone from the FBI or the CIA reach out to you, or or you know, did you ever speak to any any spies? Has anyone ever said, "Yeah, I really like this," or "You done that wrong," or no one from the FBI, FBI or CIA has has been critical. They've been. I actually um, a woman, a black woman who worked in the FBI she either tweeted at me or sent me an email where she was like, oh, you know, I was really surprised by this book that it was that she got this, the feeling of it so, so right. And that was really, that was really flattering um, to me. And, um, oh, but I thought you were going to say, was I ever like approached as a recruit? My mom was, a, um, she was a social psychology student at the University of Michigan in the 80s. And I think that they wanted uh someone like that with that with that background for maybe an analyst position so she got an interview and she was in DC and her she had like a address book and she is convinced that this address book just disappeared it, it disappeared and she doesn't know what happened to it she thinks that the CIA took it I guess and I think that she just misplaced it but the fact that she was so paranoid about it <laughs> makes me think it is really good that she did not move further with this application process because like I think that, you know, she just it just felt so clear to me that she doesn't have the temperament for that kind of job when she's like, Oh god, are they are they watching me? You know, so I um I I I, I thought that was really funny. She also told me that story like kind of late. I think I was like 
it took me seven years to write this book and I think she told me that on year five. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> this, is, this is relevant. Why Why didn't this come up before? Um, year five. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and on, on that topic, tell us a little bit more about the mechanics of writing the book. So you said it took seven years. Was there you know, there's probably some listeners that would really love to write their first novel. Um, is there any advice that you could give them? I mean, my first bit of advice would be read, read whatever you are um, want to write. You need to be reading. Um, you need to be reading that specific genre. So, yes, I I was reading a lot and researching a lot as I was writing. Um, so I think, yes, first place to start is to, is to read and not even just reading, um, just like regular, like speech reading, but reading to deconstruct. You have to, when you have a feeling in about when something makes you think something or feel something, you should be trying to retrofit the scene and figure out what it is that the author did to make you have that feeling if you want to try to recreate it um, for your for your readers. So and then after that, write. <laughs> you know, like I just mean, you know, a lot of people want to write, they say they want to write, and then you kind of ask them, how much have you written? How when do you write? You know, what 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 writing have you done? And then you kind of start to see that it's more of a uh that <laughs> they've been writing in their head but not actually putting anything down on the page and you, you gotta you gotta put you know there's some fear there sometimes you gotta put it start it down on the page or it's never you're not going to get anywhere with it um i think it's probably better not to wait for inspiration to strike and by probably i mean it is a hundred percent better not to wait for inspiration to strike but to just get up every day and say i'm going to sit next in front of my laptop and I'm going to write for an hour and even if it's nothing nothing comes out the fact that you've done that you're training yourself to keep doing it because writing really is a marathon you know so you you have to kind of get out onto the track and you have to do at least a lap every day that's the only way you're going to get any better at it um and then you know and that's the thing that keeps you th going through it's not the it's not waiting for the muse uh, the muse, you know, I don't know. I don't know her. She, she doesn't. She doesn't hang out at my house. Um, it's more. It's more muscle memory that gets you through the hard, the hard parts. When you, you know, when you're like, I don't know what to do. It's the fact that you have trained yourself to get up every day and and sit down for the last six months that makes you do it the next day. And and that's how a that's how a novel gets written. It's not. There's no other. There's nothing else really. And, and do you have a like daily word limit that you try to reach or do you have a certain time when you write or what's your kind of method or? Yeah, I think it's very important to know the time of day that you write best because writing is hard enough without working against yourself. I write really early in the morning. It's very annoying to my fiance. I like to get up at 4 a.m. Uh, to write <laughs> um, because there's you know, it's just no one else around and um, I'm not distracted by whatever's going on on Twitter or in the news. I just uh, can kind of have a little time and then, you know, my day progresses and I do other types of work uh, and other types of writing that, you know, it's not my, not my own project, but, um, you know, work. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of. And I know that you've done an MFA at Columbia. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about things that you've done in the past and the role that the MFA played in the novel coming to light? I don't know. How do you see the MFA fitting into the the, the novel and your backstory fitting into the novel? MFA is, you know, one of those tricky things. I don't Columbia. I say it's part of my bio that I went there, but they don't, I mean, I'm a proud MFA holder and MFA graduate, but I think it's too expensive. I don't think anyone should pay 
$50,000 a year to learn how to write a novel because you will not get that money back and compound interest <laughs> on your student loans will make you feel like you are drowning. I am speaking, I think it should be clear from personal experience. So like, you know, and so Columbia is not, I can't, I can't lie to people. I'm not going to say that they should definitely pursue an MFA. Not if it, not if it means taking on an incredible amount of debt. Um, that said, if I had not gone to Columbia, I don't think that I would have had this novel published because of the person who gave me that assignment, right? That to, to do the, to, to, to write the story that eventually became the novel that was at Columbia. And he also published, you know, he was my teacher, but he published that story and he published it in the literary journal that my uh, agent then read. So I never had to do like the submitting to flesh piles or any of that because of my MFA. Now, it, but it's not, there's no guarantees, right? So you can't, I, I just think it's, it's a lot to ask people to spend so much in tuition if there's no promise that they're going to have that kind of thing happen for them. And for the most part, people, people don't. A few questions uh, just to wrap up. Um, is there, do you have a favorite spy fiction novel and a favorite spy movie? Um, I love, I actually really love the spy who, who came in from, from the cold. I know I mentioned it already, but it is, uh, I, I love it's that. wonderful, movie. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, favorite spy movie. Um, I have a lot. <laughs> I, I, actually, I really like um, Atomic Blonde. I said that in another interview, okay. and someone the interviewer rolled their eyes. But like, I really, it was a lot of fun. And I like, I'm like a big fan of Charlie Theron. So um, yeah, I think those two. And then you know, in terms of spy TV shows. I also really like, there's the one that Deutschland 83 was the first, but it's like a series. Um, that one is really cool. I, I got, you know, now I've gotten into it. I'm like, I'm, I'm steeped in the, the spy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's been great to speak to you, Lauren. Is there anything that you think um, that is important to tell about your novel or about, about yourself that we haven't touched on? You know, I mean, the only thing is like people, people, often so the book was on obama's summer reading list um and that really was like took the course of my career and the book sales in a, just a really radically exciting direction until so people kind of often ask me like did you know that he did you know that that was going to be on there and what was that like and i did not know <laughs> so my landlord told me <laughs> which is she sent me a text message about it while I was at work and I had to pretend that I was paying attention to my boss when I obviously wasn't because I deserved this incredible piece of news. And then I think, and I, I told someone else this recently, which is immediately after, um, you know, immediately after it was on the list, my mom started harassing me about thank, sending Barack Obama a thank you letter because she's like, you know, I did not raise someone who is so rude as to not thank someone for doing something so important to them and for like we went back and forth on, the, on this for months i was just like he's what i don't have his he is what what was he be obama at, at gmail i don't have his i don't have a direct contact and we'll have to send in a letter to his website and i'm sure that it's one of thousands that he receives no one is ever going to see it and but she wouldn't get off my my ass about it so finally i just like, you know, like a year later i sat down and and i was like uh dear president obama thank you for including me on your on your list um and you know i am incredibly grateful but uh you know if he if he hears this the let thank you letter was not delayed because of you know because i'm not because because of a lack of gratitude so <laughs> Um, yeah. And do, uh, do you know if he got it? <laughs> of, course, of course not. Like it was just, <laughs> I mean, I've never heard anything from it. I cannot imagine like that. It's just, 
<laughs> Obama, <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> Obama, <yeah. laughs> please thank write you. back to <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> That's one thing uh, that I was thinking of. I mean, what does that feel like? There must be so many novelists or would-be novelists out there who would just, you know, that that would be the dream for them, like a Washington Post uh, bestseller, a New York Times book review, 100 recommended books for 2019 on Obama's summer reading list. I mean, what's that like to go from having not written your first novel to all of a sudden everyone, including me, is making a big fuss about you? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I think when you really, or when I really, really, really want something, I just never think about it because <laughs> I don't want to be disappointed. Um, you know, and I never really let myself think that that kind of thing could happen. I just was like, you know, I just kind of focused on finishing the book while I was writing it because it felt like going anywhere else was going to get in the way and not leave me to disappointment. Um, and now, but now it's just like, I feel, I guess I just feel gratitude, you know, because it just feels like there are so many talented writers and there are so many, you know, that, that deserve a lot of recognition. And, and I just feel really lucky, you know, to have had this unexpected um, recognition. And it was just like such an exciting thing in my life. And it's such an exciting way to have my my first book received. Um, I I'm not still not in a rush to write a second because <laughs> they are really hard. Um, but it would have been that much harder, I think, if if, if it had um, been published and and you know sold sold five copies. Um, you know, because it just feels like it's just hard. You know, it's just such a hard process. As I said, it took me a long time, and you know, so to have to have that. Um, wind in my sails from president <laughs> was like beyond beyond my um beyond even what I my wildest dreams so I just yeah I feel so grateful to whoever to whatever had you know whatever elements in the world allowed that to to, to transpire whatever people you know suggested the book or just or, or whatever I I nothing but but just excitement and gratitude about it well, th thank you so much for your time. I'm personally, you know, gratified and, and pleased that you wrote the book and it's a great addition to the literature um, and it's available in our, our online bookstore. Um, so please, uh, you know, go out and get yourself a copy. It's a great book and hopefully we'll see you in the espionage mm -hmm spy fiction genre after the american trilogy or something but <laughs> thank you very yeah. much for for having me uh, this was a great great conversation absolutely thank you the international spy museum is a full 501c3 non-profit if you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.